Uh, well, this is a parable that's often overlooked, uh, often ignored, um, for various reasons, as probably you heard Helen read it, think, wow, it's a hot day. We're using the cards as fans once again, and we're going to be talking about hell. Well, we are, uh, so we need God's help uh, to grasp what this parable actually means and then how we apply it to today. That's the promise of God's word, that it will feed us. It will be a lamp unto our feet. Uh, it will feed us richly. It will be like honey to our lips. So we pray that even this parable uh, may do just that. So let me pray again, and then we'll dive straight in. Father, thanks for your word. Confess, often we come to it and think, wow, uh, Lord, what are you going to teach us from this? Pray that you give us ears to hear. As Jesus asks of everyone that listens to his parables. And pray that you give us hearts. Hearts that would accept uh, what you have to say. And then hands and feet and minds to live out the lessons you want to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, I asked you to think about heaven. Remember, if you were here two weeks ago, we did the parable of the great banquet. Uh, and uh, I got you to uh, chat amongst yourselves in twos uh, about where you go when you think of heaven. What is it you think of? I'm not going to ask you to do the same this time around, but I do want you uh, to think about hell. When we talk about hell, where does your mind go? What do you picture? The place, the surroundings, the geography, the lake of fire? The activity, people in agony, gnashing of teeth, the people who might be there. I'll give you 20 seconds just to gather your thoughts. What's your biblical view of hell? Keep that passage open uh, and we'll dive in there in 20 seconds. The backdrop of this parable, we need to understand it before we dive in. So go with me with Bibles open, please, to uh, verse 10 of Luke 16. Here's the context that Jesus is speaking into. These are the people who are listening uh, to Jesus. Jesus says, verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And at this point, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, 
You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Bang! Straight into the context. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who loved money. And what do they do? They sneer at Jesus. It's a term used for turning your nose up at someone at some instance. It's not a blatant, in-your-face, finger-pointing, two fingers up, Jesus, do one, sneering. It's just a turn of the nose. And so Jesus tells them this parable. Scene one, there are two scenes. Here's scene one, life is pleasure and pain, 19 to 21. And then we see see scene two, which is the afterlife. And we see a dialogue that goes on there. So straight into the parable, what I'm going to try and do is is try and understand this parable. It's been great for me this week as I've digested this, try to get involved uh, in the parable. Uh, It's been an eye-opener for me. So we're going to try and rattle through this to get an understanding of it. Then we're going to apply it in three ways um, at the end. So here's the first scene. Life, pleasure and pain, 19 to 21. There we go, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So we get the picture. A self-indulgent rich man. He's got one agenda. It's himself. Every day, he's wearing purple clothing. It wouldn't be my colour of choice. Now and again, rip on a a kind of a salmon pink shirt or maybe a purple top. Every day, this man wears purple clothing. Why? Well, that time, it's very expensive. It shows other people that only the truly rich can afford this. Here he is living for himself, but wanted to remind everyone how wealthy he was. And look, he's dressed in purple and fine linen. Do you know what this actually means? It actually refers to quality Egyptian cotton used for quality underwear. This is it. So here's your boy. He's walking around in purple clothing. And he's got his Calvin Klein shinies on. Or maybe, maybe even further, he's got his Giorgio Armani boxer shorts on. And Jesus is at length to tell us. Here he is. Here's the guy. He lived in luxury every day and he feasted sumptuously. Every day was banquet day for the rich man. Verse 20. At his gate, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus, he's sick. He's lying at the gates. He's covered with sores, hungry. He's longing to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. He's a neglected beggar. So isn't simply the story in, that, in this lifetime, if you're wealthy, hell awaits you. And if you're poor here, heaven awaits. A good life here means a bad life there and vice versa. Is that not the simple story? No, it's not the surprising answer. 
But it's not the story. Because here's the story. Here's the essence of the story. What you do in life echoes in eternity. It's a quote from a great movie. Anyone know it? What you do in life echoes in eternity. Gladiator. Uh, a friend of mine bought me a present, a little birthday present, tankard. And he got the words engraved, what you do in life echoes in eternity. This is what the parable is about. What you do in life echoes in eternity. But we've only got three verses of what the rich man and what Lazarus did in life. And surely this isn't about do good here, you'll get a good life in heaven. Do bad here, get a bad life in hell. Jesus has got a lot more to say than that with his gospel of grace. So where are we to go? Let's dig a little bit deeper in those first few verses. Here's a rich man, banqueted every day, which means he did not observe the Sabbath. It means that he had no respect for the law. It means that he had his servants working 24-7. And he wanted to remind people of how rich he was. And look at Lazarus. You know the name Lazarus? He is the only individual with a name in all of Jesus' parables. The only man who has a name. We don't know the name of the Good Samaritan. We don't know the, the name of the lost son. We don't know the name of the wise and foolish builders. They have no name. Lazarus does. This must be significant. It's hugely significant. Do you know the name Lazarus? you know what it means? The one whom God helps. But Lazarus appears to be a person whom God did not help. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Verse 20. At his gate was laid. Do you know what this insinuates? That every day members of the community, his friends, would carry him and lay him down. Every day he was laid at the gate of this man's house. A common practice in the East as beggars were carried to people hotspots to beg. And so every day Lazarus was subjected to watching men walk in and out of the gate, feast and then leave. And you see, help was always at hand. And yet, it was never given. It says here that he longed just to eat the scraps. Perhaps this picture uh, behind me on the PowerPoint. Perhaps something like this. There's Lazarus. And every day, rich men walk in and out. There's the rich man himself. And look, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Were the dogs even against this man too? Well, it looks so. But here's an interesting twist in the first scene. You say, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That word even there should just be and. And the dogs came and licked his sores. Do you know recent scientific scholarship has identified that dog saliva contains healing agents. 400 years BC, a mass grave was dug up 
1,300 remains of dogs were found in the graves near the ancient city of Ascalon, thought to have been used in Phoenician healing cult, where the dogs would be trained to lick the wounds of those who were ill. Why? To give the chance of quicker healing. You see, the rich man will do nothing for Lazarus. But look at these wild dogs. Dogs that would usually attack strangers. Dogs who would be, not official guard dogs, but the scraps from the the rich man's table would keep them interested enough to, to use them as guard dogs. And look what they do to Lazarus. The commentator Bailey says this, which reading the parable at first glance, I would never get. He says this, In this parable, with the briefest of strokes, Jesus paints a clear picture of Lazarus' gentle soul. He was a man at peace with himself, within his sufferings, and managed to live in harmony even with the wild guard dogs around him. There's scene one as we dig a little bit deeper into the parable. Scene one of the rich man and Lazarus. Here's scene two, death. And again, the the headline, pleasure and pain. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Look, Lazarus had no funeral. He was immediately transported to the side of Abraham, reclining as in a banquet, sitting by his side. And look, the rich man dies. He's buried. He has his funeral. And here the tension continues between the rich man and Lazarus. And remember, it's a story. It's a provocative story to expose the Pharisees for what they're living for. It's not a picture of what really happens. Jesus doesn't tell this to give us a theology, a doctrine of hell. He tells it for a purpose. Look, the rich man knows the name of Lazarus. And you see what that implies? He knew the name of Lazarus in life. And if he knew Lazarus in life, he knew of the desperate need of help that he was in. Surely now, of all times, the rich man is about to apologise. Surely. But the rich man still refuses to speak to Lazarus. It's like even now, the rich man's state is far above. I will not touch an untouchable. And an unbelievable dialogue takes place between the rich man and Abraham. And the rich man has three requests, which Abraham answers. Look at verse 24, request one. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 
He starts by reminding Abraham of the family connection. Father Abraham. See, family is everything in the Middle East. Surely now his father will come to his aid. There's no embarrassment from the rich man. Have pity on me, cries the rich man. Be merciful. It's the traditional cry of a beggar. Two chapters later, in Luke 18, we hear that same cry of the blind beggar with Jesus. But his demand is almost unbelievable. Send Lazarus. You see that? Instead of an apology to Lazarus, he demands a service from him. So you might as well have said this. Look at Lazarus. He's doing all right now. I demand that he come and see to my need. Send him immediately, Abraham. Father, Abraham. See what the rich man can only think of still? Is his need. Demanding help from the man that he bruised so deeply. How will Lazarus respond? The listeners and the readers at this moment are waiting. How will Lazarus respond? And a commentator put it, puts it like this. Here's the expected response of Lazarus. You half-dead dog. I see you recognise my face and you call my name. You saw me outside your gate but you did nothing to alleviate my pain. Your dogs were kind to me. They licked my wounds, but where were you when I needed your help? Now you want to serve me? I cannot believe it. Abraham, don't even talk to this monstrous ego. Let him fry in hell. He fed the dogs, but not me. He's only now suffering half of what he deserves. Is that what Lazarus says? For Lazarus, there is wonderful silence. There's patience. There's forbearance. Abraham replies, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things? But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Look, Abraham still uses this word of affection. Dear son, it's the word that the father uses in the lost son parable. Still shows that he's a member of the extended family. And the four statements here from Abraham to the rich man are the four phrases of the parable on earth. Scene one. You received good things. See that word received? Absolutely key. Everything that the rich man had was from God. You received good things, Lazarus. And Lazarus received bad things, i.e. from you, rich man. Now Lazarus is comforted here. He's comforted because he's not with you, rich man. You are in the place you deserve. And Abraham goes on, look at the chasm. And aren't you left scratching your head here a little bit? 
Why does Abraham say this in verse 26? And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Why does Abraham say that? Why would anyone want to go from heaven to hell? You see, it just might be that Abraham's got a volunteer. You see, Lazarus is still on the stage. Perhaps it was Lazarus who whispers in his ear, Abraham, that's my poor neighbour down there. Well, look at request 2, verse 27. Here's the rich man. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And the commentators say, hey, here's the story. Jesus makes this story up. Why five brothers? Didn't actually have five brothers. It's just a made-up story from Jesus. Well, five brothers plus one equals six, and that's the biblical number of evil. Had they accepted Lazarus as a brother, that would have been seven. The biblical number that is perfect, some commentators talk about. And perhaps there's something in there. But isn't this rich man being noble to his brothers? No. We're not to think that. The rich man is still thinking of Lazarus as his servant. Now he becomes the errand boy. And Abraham says they've got more than enough information to change their ways from Moses and the prophets. Look there in verse 29. And so here comes request three. It's the third request. He tries to correct Abraham of all things. Verse 13, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. He's saying to Abraham, no, you're wrong. He corrects him. Look, he sees Lazarus feasting at the side of Abraham and still he is not changing his ways or his words. His brothers will not change, Abraham says. A glimpse of the world that can look no further than their own needs and desires. Well, it's a grim story, isn't it? We've dived a little bit deeper. I'm sure there's much more to understand Where do we go in our application? Three very quick applications. Let's try and breathe for a moment and say, Lord, what's in that story for us? What are we to do with this story of Jesus? Do you know what ultimately this is about? A story that asks us, how are we to respond to the pleasure to the giving of God's grace and how are we to respond to the pain that we face in life? How are we to respond to pleasure, to the giving of God's good grace and how are we to respond to the pain of life? Here's three questions that we should be asking of this text. First one, don't ask me, sorry, don't ask why me God, ask what now God? Do you know every event in life 
has meaning. What we do with the gifts that we've been given. What do we do with the pain that we will ultimately face in life? Self-indulgence, indifference to the need of others, or Lazarus, patience, long-suffering, and implied forgiveness. You see, the mystery of suffering is not answered in this parable. We're not to go to this parable to try and understand the, the suffering of life. We never will this side of eternity. Life is not fair, we suggest. But you see, with Lazarus, no complaints. And do you know what? I am so tempted to ask, why me, God? So tempted to ask, why me, God? Every day, life is so unfair. Let me give you a one minute. Oh, it might be a little bit longer. Uh, one minute, let's go two minutes. I'm just going to tell you about my life in the uh, asking that question of God, it's just not fair. Spotty teenager. Spots when I least wanted them. God, it's just not fair. I had a pretty deep psychological condition in my late teens. I remember talking to one friend. It's just not fair. Dreams shattered when I didn't make it as a professional footballer. God, it's just not fair. Pretty messy girlfriend breakup. God, it's just not fair. Shoulder injury that stopped me playing any kind of competitive sport, any kind of level. God, it's just not fair. Car breakdown in France a few weeks ago. God, it's just not fair. And you might be sitting there going, pathetic. That is a, a pathetic list of that's not fair. But you know, it really mattered to me at the time. It really mattered to me. And we're not called to do a comparison project against each other. We're called to look at the problem and ask, what now, God? Not God, it's not fair. See why? Because I'm Lazarus. I'm the one whom God helps. That's the name of Lazarus. The one whom God helps. What is your story? At 22 years old, God broke into my life. He opened my blind eyes to the truth. I'll never forget the moment. How did he help me see friends around me? See my deep need and God came to help. I am Lazarus, the one whom God helped. I remember a song that we sang in church one night. Broke me to the core. The words of the song are, Let the praises of my heart be thine, for Christ has died, that I may call him mine, that I may sing with those who dwell above, adoring, praising Jesus, King of love. I'm Lazarus, the one whom God helps by sending his son to die in my place. Don't ask, why me, God? Please, church, stop asking, why me, God? Ask, what now, God? It's a song we're going to sing after I finish in a few moments. It is well with my soul. 
to sing that and to say, God, what now? Not, why me? History is littered with Christians who said, what now, God? Against all the adverse conditions, what now? There's application one. Here's application two. Would we ask God, what am I doing with grace given to me? Or ask myself, sorry. What am I doing with grace given to me? Oh, we're so wealthy in the West. Wealth is not a bad thing. Jesus is not saying it's a bad thing. But see how the rich man uses his wealth for indulgence. He did not care for people around him. So can I ask, are you being generous with the much or little you have? Are you opening up your bank account regularly and saying, for you, Lord, it's for you? Are you opening up your diary regularly and saying, it's for you, Lord, it's your time? Are you opening up your home? Be hospitable to others? You see, the parable presents a real picture of social injustice. We have to act. No, we don't have to act to get into heaven. It's not something we have to do. But because we of all people, we get the gospel of grace. We've been given grace. Now can we give grace to others? Here's the danger. We talk a great game in Bista. Kerry and I could talk a great game in Bistra, people that need help, but we do nothing about it. Application two, will you ask yourself regularly, what am I doing with grace that is given me? And then number three, sorry, I'm going to go on a little bit over time. Would you ask God to give you eternal perspective? Here's what Dawkins says about death. We are going to die. That makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they are never going to be born. He was quoting uh, about people that aren't born uh, who have great gifts to offer the world and we'll never see them. But he's so flippant about death. We are going to die and that makes us the lucky ones. Look what we understand, what we learn about hell here. It's a real place. Hades. It's outer darkness. Look what the place is. It's a place of suffering and judgment. I am in agony here, says the rich man. And it's a place of separation. A great chasm has been fixed. No man can cross it. No man can cross it except Christ. And people say, a God who sends innocent people to hell, I cannot trust him. And he sent Jesus so that I don't have to face hell because no one is innocent. See, hell puts God in an almost helpless and hopeless situation. God's heart is burning for the lost. His compassion is aroused and he cries out, why must you make me do this? Hell, here's the gospel of grace. God does not want people to go to hell. Here's the gospel of grace. He wants all men to be saved. Hosea 11 verse 8 is brilliant. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. You see, hell is a place where people don't have to go. Would this parable drive us to mission? Would it? 
It's on our doorstep. Lazarus every day. On the doorstep of the rich man. Missions on my doorstep. There are people around me that need to hear of Christ and they need to respond to the call in repentance. So here's my last question, and Chris, you can come up uh, and give the guitar a little tune. Here's my last question. How will you respond to the grace given you today, this week? Or how will you respond to the pain that you experience today or this week? How will you experience both in light of the eternity to come? Will you be Lazarus? Which means the one who God helps. Prayer is that you and I will be and will give him great thanks that he's helped us through the Lord Jesus. Why don't we stand and sing together, It is well, deeply well, with my soul.